Hey there, Lucas here. About a month ago, Jesse and I recorded a very special episode of Double Blind because we were both about to take breaks for other projects. Then we got so busy with those other projects that we never actually edited and released that episode. So I'm here now to say that Double Blind is not dead. We will be back in February, but until then, please enjoy a very special episode of the show. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Lucas. And this is a very special episode of Double Blind. Normally, every week we pick two breaking scientific studies, we put them in context, explain exactly what happened and why it matters. But this week we're going to do something a little bit different. We've been pretty busy lately, both with scientific related things, and in fact we're going to take a little bit of a break after this episode for a couple months. Don't worry, we'll be back in February with more Double Blindy goodness for you. But until then, we're going to tell you what we're up to. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind. A hole in the bottom of the sea. Lucas's upcoming adventure in the Indian Ocean. And taking the red pill. Jesse's sci-fi look at a mind-bending hypothesis. Lucas, why don't you start us off today? Thanks, Jesse. Uh, so yeah, as you alluded to, the uh, the reason we're taking a few months, or two months at least, is I'm about to catch a plane. And it's going to take me to Sri Lanka, um, a city called Colombo. And in Colombo, I'm going to get on a boat. This boat is called the Joides Resolution. And essentially, it's a really big boat with a giant drill on the back of it. Like the entire boat is a big drill. Uh, we'll post we'll post some photos on our website because it's actually quite impressive looking. And I'm going to spend two months on this boat, and we're going to drill a hole in the bottom of the ocean. Okay. Specifically, uh, in an undersea ridge off the coast of Madagascar. Right. In the Indian Ocean. And this is all part of something which is called the International Ocean Discovery Program. Okay. Or IODP. And uh, this is expedition number 360 of the IODP. Holy so they God. have, they've done this before. 359 times? Yeah, pretty much. Like they've drilled, <laughs> like that's the number of holes that have been drilled kind of thing? It, it's, it's not, it doesn't correspond to the number of holes because there's often more than one hole drilled on a particular expedition. Okay. In fact, there's usually more than one hole drilled on an expedition. And in fact, even before the IODP existed, there was the ocean drilling program. And then there was the deep sea drilling program before that. Right. And then there was something called Project Molehole before that. And we'll, <laughs> I'll get into Project Molehole. Okay. I'll, I'll explain I, I it. I won't worry. ask now then. Okay. All right. So this is actually has a really long history over multiple decades. And we've learned some really cool things from this program. Uh, some things you probably actually heard of. Um, we've, in fact, created a really cool record of about the last 100 million years of Earth's climate. Okay. A lot of the data that's gone into that has been from this ship and this research program. Oh, wow. Cool. Or if you've heard of a little something called the theory of plate tectonics. I think I may have heard of that. <laughs> you may have heard of that, right? So this is the, I mean, you learn in elementary school, the idea where there's continental plates and there's oceanic plates and they move around and oceans are formed at these ridges in the middle and yeah. subducting are destroyed at the edges. Yeah. This is this big unifying theory which was rather controversial in geology and geophysics for a long time right. until the ocean drilling program came along 
and looked at the seafloor and provided some really definitive evidence for the theory of plate tectonics. So what's so special about the hole that this boat is drilling? So think back to elementary school and that famous diagram of the earth with either a half of it or a quarter of it cut away so you can see inside okay. of it. Totally. Right? With all the layers. It, it kind of looks like... Yeah, it looks like a jawbreaker almost, right? Yeah, totally. Just different, different layers as you go down. We live on the, the top layer and the thinnest layer, which is called the crust, right? Okay. And then if you go down a little bit, you hit the next layer, uh, which is the mantle. And then there's the outer core and there's the inner core. Right. Right? Now, we actually haven't known about these layers for very long either. Um, it kind of all started, once again, early in the 20th century. Sure. In 1909, there was an earthquake in Croatia. Mm-hmm. And luckily, there was a curious scientist who was around to feel this earthquake. And this is another really hard name to pronounce. Uh, Andrija Morhorovicic. Okay. I believe. I trust I you. apologize to the Croatians out there, but I believe that is how you pronounce it. Morhorovicic. So when this earthquake happens, or when any earthquake happens, what it does is seismic waves radiate out from its epicenter. Okay. And these are actual physical waves that travel through the rock of the earth and the speed at which these waves travel depends on the type of rock they're traveling through sure sometimes they travel faster or slower ah yes so andrija looked at the record of this earthquake which was recorded at a number of seismographs in different locations sure and seismographs you've you've probably seen it in like yeah. you know earthquake coverage on the news it's one of those finely balanced pendulums or needles today they're all electromagnets but Essentially, they record the shaking of an earthquake. Sure. If the Earth was uniform in composition, the time at which those seismic waves would arrive at each station Mm -hmm. would be proportional to the distance between the station and the epicenter of the earthquake. Right. That makes sense. Good. Now, the interesting thing is this is not what was observed. Mm -hmm. Morhorovic, Morhorovicic, Morhorovicic found that at stations 200 kilometers away and greater that waves had actually sped up. Mm, okay. Which was really weird, right? Right. You sh- waves of things usually don't speed up as you get further away from them. Yes. They lose energy and they slow down. These ones got there faster. So he concluded that deep beneath the surface of the Earth, there must be a layer of denser rock. Mm. And therefore, the stations further away would catch the waves which had traveled through that denser layer of rock and arrive sooner. Interesting. You know, these this whole thing of earthquakes and waves behaving differently is how we found all those layers, the outer core and the inner core as well. Right. But just for the moment, Mohorovicic was just looking at the crust and the mantle. So just that very first boundary that you see on those diagrams. Sure. This boundary, which can actually be seen in these seismic signals all over the world, is now called the Mohorovicic discontinuity, or the MOHO for short. Yeah, we named it after him. The MOHO. That's That's the That's the short name. Yeah. We've wanted to drill to the MOHO for a long time. <laughs> That's just a funny sentence. I'm sorry. It is. No, totally. And why exactly would we want to do that? Well, we want to figure out what exactly it is. Because we can make really good guesses about what the mantle's made of, what's in there, and how things change as you enter it. Right. But we don't know for sure. Okay, so... How far down have we gotten? So that's a really good question. The deepest artificial point Mm -hmm. is just over 12 kilometers. Okay. And the crust is how thick? So the crust varies in thickness by quite a bit. On continents, it's around 30 kilometers thick. Um, It can be more like the Himalayas are far more than that. Right, of course. Uh, It can be less too. 
Uh, in the oceans, it's far thinner. Of course. So in the oceans, it's around 10 kilometers, okay. give or take. The interesting thing is that a lot of places in the oceans, there is mantle exposed for various right. reasons, which is kind of cool. That is cool. And kind of plays into what I'm about to talk about with okay. the expedition we're going to go to. Okay, so let's find out about it. So why do we want to look at that boundary? Well, we want to know if it's an actual change in rock composition or if it's the limit of some sort of chemical alteration. If there's some sort of process which just changes the rocks when they're deeper or shallower. Due to pressure or heat? The interesting thing is actually due to water. Oh. Um, the thought is it could have something to do with the boundary to which water permeates the crust. Interesting. And there's this particular reaction called serpentinization. Okay. Which is just the changing of one mineral to a mineral called serpentine. And that requires water, but it also changes the density of the minerals. So there could be some thought about that help, uh, happening and causing this change in density. Cool. And I mean, we want to answer general questions of how does the oceanic crust form? The oceanic crust covers most of the planet. We want to know exactly how the mantle, which is, you know, below, creates that at right. these mid-ocean ridges. And I mentioned water permeates the, uh, the crust. An interesting sort of thing we've noticed in previous observations is where we see water, we also see... Life. Yeah, there you go. You got it. Life. This is another big question which which this expedition is actually going to look at is how deep can we find microbial life inside the Earth itself? Interesting. So if water is flowing through the deep crust, we expect to find microbes there. And this is potentially a massive habitat, which is completely unstudied. So, I, I mean, that it could be anything from That's new really cool. medical discoveries could come out of these sort of microbes to uh, implications for life in space and other extreme environments. Right. I assume we'd find those like extremophiles that we hear about that live in volcanoes and totally and oceanic ridges and stuff. Yeah. Stuff like that. Exactly. So these are the sort of questions that are floating around and are important to think about why and when we're trying to actually drill okay. down to this level. Really cool. And a point which you kind of brought up is why haven't we got there already? Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, in, in the 1960s, the U.S. launched a project called Project Mohol, uh, which was sadly canceled due to it being really, really, really expensive. Okay. They, they did start drilling, and they got, you know, a fair ways down, but they didn't make it anywhere close to the actual mantle. So not to be outdone, because it was the Cold War, uh, mm -hmm. after all, the Soviets began drilling the Kola Superdeep Borehole. Now, this st was started in 1970. Mm -hmm. They drilled over 12 kilometers. It took them 19 years to do that. Oh so they God. were at it a long time. And despite this being the deepest point on Earth now that we've drilled to, yeah. they actually did not penetrate the crust as this drill site was on land. Oh, it's... Yeah. Uh, when you're on a continent, the crust is much, much thicker. Okay. So since then, there have been many attempts to try to get down to the Moho, which a couple of which were direct precursors to this cruise, which I'm going to be on sure. uh, next month. But this is really a significant technical challenge. Essentially, due to the rock type on the seafloor, mm -hmm. it's a rock called basalt. Sure. The holes are really brittle. They're hard to drill through. They're brittle. They're likely to collapse. Okay. So what makes this upcoming expedition special is this site that we're going to travel to in the Indian Ocean is called the Atlantis Bank. And it's called the Atlantis Bank because it was once above sea level. It was once an island. And islands tend to erode. Right. So what happened was when this was sticking above the surface of the ocean, all the basalt that makes up the upper crust 
was eroded away. Oh, it's already gone. So now it's uh, 700 meters below the sea surface, but we can go to it and we can drill directly into the deep crustal rocks, which are much easier to drill oh, than those upper crustal rocks. So it's really an engineering challenge as much as a scientific one. That's cool. Okay, so how how deep are you guys planning to go this time? And how long will that take? What we're planning to do is get a little over a kilometer. Mm-hmm. Maybe about 12, 1,300 meters, maybe as much as 1,500. Sure. Uh, it's going to take us two months of constant drilling to wow. do that. Okay. And then, hopefully, we're going to get eventually down to about three kilometers. Um, but that eventually is dependent on a lot of things. It's sure. dependent on this scientific drill ship being back in the Indian Ocean. It's dependent on the funding being in place. So this is... a uh, multiple years in the future sort of thing. Okay. So you, you're going to drill about a kilometer on this trip is the hope. And then yes. would come back later and continue the, continue the Precisely. process. Wow. Very cool. Okay. So, I mean, that's expedition 360 kind of in a nutshell. I'll be on board. Cool. Which I guess there's another big question there is why am I on board? Yes. Yeah, so what, what will you be doing? <laughs> I have no experience drilling holes in the ocean floor. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to be the education and outreach officer. One of them. There's a few on board. And I'm going to be doing what I do essentially every week on Double Blind, which is talking about the science that's happening on board the ship. Cool. So I'll be doing this in a few ways. Uh, I'm going to be posting weekly podcast episodes. Uh, I'm calling the podcast A Hole in the Bottom of the Sea. Today, just on this episode, I'm just kind of brushing the surface of what's going to happen on this expedition. Sure. So to hear the full story um, told by the scientists who've been at this at this site for 30 years trying to get this hole drilled... Uh, you can tune into that podcast. It's it's going to be a lot of fun. I'll also have real-time updates uh, about the expedition, about the progress, what's happening. And the first episode will be posted in the last week in November. So it's cool. coming up nice and soon. And where can people find that? So you can find that at uh, joidesresolution.org. Okay. So that's J-O-I-D-E-S resolution.org. Uh, we'll also post some links on the Double Blind website and social media. And those will link you to iTunes so you can subscribe through there. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks, Lucas. That's yeah. that's really exciting. Oh, it's going to be great to see what happens. It should be. Um, if I don't get too seasick, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, is there like any danger of like you said, like if the weather gets rough, like or is this going to be one of those? It's the middle of the ocean. You're going to end up lost at sea. Like what's what's going on? Ho- hopefully not. They're, they are very good at okay. this. They've done this a lot. They've right. done this with the ship a lot. The, the crew of the ship are you know, absolutely pros at what they do. So uh, the risks are low for sure. Um, But I mean, risk of seasickness is high. Yes, (laughs) for sure. Uh, So we'll see how, how that goes. Lucas, you are heading off to do some real hard science. In the next little yes. while. Um, yes. But while you are doing that, and while you've been preparing for doing that, I have had my head up in the world of science fiction. Right. You know. <laughs> I have been working on a short film that I'm that I directed. Uh, we just finished mm-hmm. shooting last week. Yeah. And that's been in development for like the better part of a year now. And there's two months to go before we're totally done. Yeah. But this short film is based on a really interesting scientific concept slash argument 
All right. So, yeah, this is a, a cool time to talk a little bit about that, because that's what I'm going to be working on in the next little while while, while you're off gallivanting around the ocean. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited for this because I read a read a couple of versions of your script and we had some arguments about the plausibility of the scientific concept. And okay. I think you convinced me over the last few months. that yeah. it's maybe plausible. <laughs> OK, well, let's get let's get it. So I'm excited. So the the film that I wrote and directed is called Qualia. Yep. And it's this fun sci-fi adventure about the concept that the entire universe that we live in is a simulation. Right. Right? Not real. Simulated. That's that's the idea. Right. I, I see these, like, headlines every few months coming out that, like, some physicist somewhere has found proof that we live in a computer <laughs> simulation. And I never believe them. I, well, I'm always super skeptical. Nobody has found proof of that. I'll tell you that right okay. now. Uh, Thank you. That has not been proved. that. And, and possibly never will be. But we'll get into that in a second. All right. Sounds good. First off... I mean, this is an idea that seems to mostly live in science fiction, at least as far as most people know. It's definitely in that sci-fi realm. But the theory is one that has actually been gaining a lot of traction lately. As, you, as you've said, there's been articles popping up with reputable scientists and philosophers talking about, talking about this idea that we might be living in a computer simulation of some sort. This idea is known as the simulation argument or the simulation hypothesis. All right. And we'll get a little more into the difference between an argument and a hypothesis a bit later. So hold tight for that. Sure. So I think I said the word theory a minute earlier, but yeah. note that this is not a valid scientific theory at this point because there's nothing to substantiate it yet. It's it's purely a logical argument. All right. right. So this is this is not someone no one's observed anything. No. A scientific theory is a hypothesis to which we have substantial evidence evidence that that's actually mm-hmm. what's going on right so the theory of evolution for example is something that we call a theory although we know that it's absolutely true it's been proven many times over right it's the idea that sort of unifies the observations of things changing over time exactly particular ad- adaptations coming out totally so yeah. the, the there was originally the hypothesis of evolution and mm. then there were a number of experiments and tests and studies and research that was done yeah. And eventually that created a more unified theory of evolution where we had the explanation of exactly what happened. And now we say the theory of evolution still because it is a theory, but it right. is also true. So right. that's what's going on there. Um, this is an argument or a hypothesis only at this point. There is no current proof. This idea that our world is not real, it's been explored in literature and film for a long, long time, right? Mm-hmm. The most well-known example is The Matrix. Yes. Right? So in that world... Humans have become slaves to sentient machines who keep us alive as a power source and feed us this matrix, which is the simulated world to keep our minds active. And the whole concept of those films is pretty ridiculous. Humans are a terrible power source. The power source thing is the problem with it is the machines are using us as a power source. We would make a terrible, terrible power source. We are very inefficient sources of energy. We consume power. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah, we do the opposite. Okay. And, of course, that accepts that we've built sentient machines and they've taken over and blah, 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 blah. That, that's probably the most well-known example of this theory in, in literature and film. But novels and stories way back in the 40s and 50s were still playing with the idea. But it wasn't until the early 2000s that the scientific community started thinking about taking the red pill, so to speak, and picked up on this idea. Okay. So in 2003, Nick mm-hmm. Bostrom, who's a Swedish philosopher published a paper called Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? All right. That's a, that's a very descriptive title. It's a very descriptive title. It's a very provocative title. And that's kind of yeah. what started this recent craze off. Okay. He starts with the idea 
that we may at some point reach a post-human stage of our of our progression and technological development. In this case, post-human means we're at a point where we can simulate consciousness. In other words, create an artificial intelligence in a computer. So this is that's the first idea, is that we may right. be we may reach that point at some point soon. In this in this first paper, he presents this logical argument which shows that at least one of the following three things is true. This is the core of it. Okay. So there's three propositions, and this paper s- gives a logical argument that one of at least one of these has to be true. All right. Proposition one is the human species is very likely to go extinct before reaching the post-human stage. Okay. And sorry, post-human stage. That's that one where we're, we we reach a point where we're able to simulate consciousness. Okay. So it's we're just, able yeah, okay. to create sentient sentient self-aware beings in a computer sure okay so that's the first proposition is that we will go we're very likely to go extinct before we reach the post-human stage okay proposition two is that any post-human civilization is extremely unlikely to run a significant number of simulations of their evolutionary history okay so we reach the point but we don't do it exactly to or or don't do it to any great extent exactly and proposition three is we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation. Okay, you just made a jump there. Yes. Okay, what's the jump? It does like, seem like me, a bit of a walk jump. Walk me through the jump. Yeah. Why why is it those first two things or we're living in a computer simulation? That does seem like a big leap, right? Yeah. Well, here's the here's the logical proof. Okay. If we run several simulations. So if we if we reach the post-human stage and we begin yeah. we run, you know, several simulations of our evolutionary history where we yeah. simulate even as far back as the Big Bang or the formation of the the Earth and, and the development of humanity and life and different species, mm-hmm. it's very, very likely that the simulated worlds that we are simulating in the computers will eventually reach the post-human stage themselves and begin simulating their own universes or worlds. Yeah, provided these simulations are good enough, right? Well, that that's the whole thing. It's one of those conditions is that we have to reach that post-human stage. Right. Okay. Sure. So, if we reach the point, let, let, let's let's continue to suspend disbelief and imagine that we're at that point now where we've reached the post-human stage, and we've started simulating universes. We we have several simulations running, mm-hmm. and those simulations, the the people or beings in those simulations, have evolved long enough to reach their own post-human stage and begin to simulate consciousness themselves. So, let's say that we've gotten to the point now where there's even let's say 99 nested simulations right so 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 we reach it then the next one reaches it exactly or the next one down almost like next one nested inside the russian yeah, think doll of it like, simulations yeah, matryoshka dolls that's exactly the analogy those dolls inside yeah so let's imagine that there's 99 nested realities okay sure okay so we're running there's a big supercomputer somewhere that's running a simulation which has in it beings who are running their own simulation etc cetera, etc cetera, down the line yeah so that means there's a total of 100 universes, one of which is real, right? Right. Okay. So imagining that we're in that world and we're at that point where that has occurred, if I were mm-hmm. to pick a random person from the 100 total universes, and let's call him Joe, Yeah. and I show you a picture of Joe, and I ask mm-hmm. you, is this person a real person or a simulant, a simulated person? What would you say? Well, the probability is very likely that he's a simulated person exactly there's only a one in 100 chance that he's a real person in this case yeah so what if i pick you and i say are you being simulated right most likely most likely you are okay so 
that's that's the logic that gets us to number three in those three propositions. So let's go back to the first right. two now and look at how if either of those two are not the case, we sh- we are most likely living in a simulation because that's that's what that argument states, right? It was either either one, two, or we're living in a simulation most likely. Yeah. So okay. the first one was that we're very likely to go extinct before reaching that stage. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, if it's likely that any advanced civilization is very likely to go extinct before they get to that point because of any number of other things that technology or you know brings about, say climate change or or nanobots or any of the number of huge potential life-ending crises that we're worried about. Yeah. So that's that's the first idea is civilizations tend to go extinct before they can reach this stage. It's just too hard to get there without having something else just completely destroy your civilization. Yeah, okay. The second one, we go back to that one, is that once we reach the post-human stage, we're very unlikely to run those simulations. Okay. That could be because of resources, computing power, not right. feeling like it's necessary for whatever reason. Or the internal fear that if we do that, it means we're part of a computer simulation? Exactly. Okay, yeah. So really, that's <laughs> what Bostrom was arguing in this in this 2003 paper, is that unless we're going to die as a species before we reach that post-human point or that post-human point does not bring about the desire and ability to really create a lot of simulations. Unless one of those things is true, we are most likely living in a simulation. Right. Wow. Does that make sense? It, it, it does to me. Yeah. And yeah. And it's, I I don't want it to make sense. No, it's really difficult. It's a difficult concept to wrap your head around. It feels like it shouldn't make sense. Well, we're going to... It does. We'll we'll talk about more of the science of it in a second. Okay. But, I mean, what science there is. But the main thing to remember is that this is actually, at this point, like, it's been reviewed a lot and talked about a lot. And it's Mm -hmm. generally a pretty sound logical argument. Right. The the logic of it. Exactly. The logic checks out that that it has to be either proposition one, two, or three. At least one of those does have to be true. Sure. And yeah. pe- people disagree a lot on which ones they think are more likely. <laughs> of course. Um, Bostrom himself guesses that there's about a 20% chance that we're living in a simulation for whatever that's worth. Okay. So he thinks it's more likely one or two. He thinks it's more likely one or two. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, <laughs> which of course brings its own set of implications around meaning yes. that, in that case, I believe he thinks it's more likely that we're going to go extinct before we get to that point. That's the one I'm on the side of, for the record. Having having heard this argument before and thought about it, I definitely think we're most mm-hmm. likely to go extinct. Totally. So, that yeah, that's, that's the point we're at right now. So, does the term post-human, yeah. does that come from the implication that we are then gods? <laughs> well, now Is we're that what that the- means? The religious aspect of it. I think all it means is that we're able to create consciousness that is not human. Right. Right. Non-evolved, naturally evolved right. consciousness. Although, of course, if this theory is correct, then we are also n- not a naturally evolved consciousness. Or maybe we are if the simulations detail it enough. It's, it's, yeah. it's a philosophically really complicated question. Um, one, one, funny, one funny thing is there, there was a, a philosopher who was talking to Nick Bostrom about this when he proposed Mm -hmm. the idea. And I cannot remember his name for the life of me, but I have the quote from him where he said, the simulation argument is perhaps the first interesting argument for the existence of a creator in over 2000 years. That's kind of funny. I like that. I like it too. And I kind of buy it. Like (laughs) 
it's it does create like a reasonable like an understandable set of circumstances in which we would have essentially gods or creators of course they could just be like us yeah which is <laughs> terrifying i mean we've talked a lot about the logical theory here but mm-hmm. let's let's get into the real world or the simulated world what do we know right so how could we actually prove that this is true yeah how do we support this yeah how could we, how could or we ever refute it exactly so a scientific hypothesis needs to be disprovable exactly so bostrom wrote the argument that logical argument with the three propositions okay sure the the hypothesis then is that mm. we are living in a computer simulation yes could, that could be one hypothesis yeah but we have no current good way of actually proving that we have no way of creating an experiment at the moment in which we could prove or disprove that that was the case the the best proof that we have okay. that, we, that we could possibly have would be if our simulators the the ones running this simulation decided to let us know yes that would that yeah. would seem like it's likely evidence in the and if we are in a simulation that's not something that would be totally out of the question true especially as we begin to reach this stage where we start talking about the idea that we're in a simulation Right. Are they listening to Double Blind right now? They could be. We don't know. The simulators um, listen to Double Blind. That'd be pretty flattering, I think. How many how many listeners does that count for? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that if there's a multiplier should, or something. We should start putting ads in if yeah. if the simulators are listening. If you're listening and you're running our world. But so aside from actually I guess I guess that having our simulators let us know is like the equivalent of divine intervention, right? yes it's exactly the same thing so aside from that kind of divine intervention so to speak sure we we don't really know what we could do to prove this definitively right there's there are some discoveries and possible discoveries that seem to be in line with the theory but it's hard to tell whether those would just indicate that this is how the universe actually is or point towards it being a simulation uh and we're getting out of my ability to understand here. Just, just to clarify, are you, are you saying that, you know, we, we observe something and it's in line with the simulation hypothesis, but it's hard to figure out whether or not it is evidence towards the simulation hypothesis or if it's just we're taking these ducks and putting them in a row because we want them to be in a row. That's exactly it. Because we okay, still yeah. don't know enough about how our universe works that, you right. know, we could go, okay, if we're in a simulated world, we would expect to find blah but then if we find blah we can go okay that does back up that we could be living in a simulation that aligns with what we believe but it's right it's bad science to assume that there isn't some other reason for that totally and because sure. we don't know the basics of how our universe works still and we're still <laughs> working on that and trying to find a good unified theory we're getting there physics yeah, is on it exactly but because because physics is on it and not done with it yet it would be really hard to tell if any discovery pointed towards a simulation hypothesis or just didn't disprove it yeah and i mean even i like it it, it, to me it's weird because like even if some point that will never actually come but like some theoretical point where like physics is like yep we've got it we're done physicists you're out of a job yeah we figured out the universe like even then i don't know like it boggles my mind i can't think of a test we would use for an observation that we'd be like yep natural universe simulation natural universe simulation i don't know how we'd sort those well yeah we we, we don't really know there's the couple that have been talked about recently because this really has yeah. been gaining a lot of traction in the scientific community it's being talked about more than ever right now um the two big ones that have showed up recently are the the idea that if we were able to properly analyze certain high energy cosmic rays mm-hmm. they should have a certain directionality to them if we were living in a simulation 
And for the life of me, I don't understand why that is the case. And I tried do I. and I couldn't find it within the scope of what we were doing today. But the the way it was described in in one article, which was an interesting analogy, is that if if we are living in a simulation, if the universe is simulated, these high energy cosmic rays should have this directionality kind of like like the grain of wood in the way they move. And they would not have that if we were not living in a simulation. Okay. Sorry, I'm silent because I don't I get don't I don't get why. it here. I just know that okay. high energy cosmic rays are one of the things that people are talking about regarding this. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm afraid I don't have more. No, 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 no. It's okay. I, I we'll we'll let them yeah. we'll let them talk about it. Yeah. There's other more anecdotal things that that kind of point towards this being not incredibly untrue. Like, okay. For example, there was a discovery recently that strings from string theory, yeah, seem to have this error correcting behavior in them that's really okay. reminiscent of computer code. Oh, the way that they correct errors is based on or not based on. That's totally a leap. It's not based on, but it looks very, very similar to how we write computer code. Right. Okay. That those behaviors. So looking. Yeah. Looking for essentially signs of if we were to simulate a universe, what would we do? What would we do? Exactly. But then but then that seems like circular logic because it seems like we would just if we were going to simulate a universe like our own, we'd look to our own universe for inspiration. So if then we're looking at how we do it and then looking at our own universe and saying, hey, we're, it, our own universe is like how we would do it. it yep. Uh, so It's so circular. It is circular. So this brings us back to the most likely way that we will be able to come the closest to realizing we're in a simulation. Based on those three propositions from that original paper, pretty much yeah. the only way that we'll be able to have a pretty good idea that we're living in a simulation... Mm-hmm. is if we simulate consciousness. Right. Once we develop AI and we create a simulated world with with sentient beings inside yeah, that believe here, that they're real, once we get yeah. to that point, because of those the way those three arguments were posited in the original theory, as soon as we've done that, it's really, really, really likely that we're living in a simulation. So the proof is we can do it. The or proof, we can't do Exactly. It. The proof is we can do it and we do. So if you are... The last human on Earth about to go extinct, you will know this is unlikely. Yes, exactly. That would have fulfilled the first require the you know the first argument, first proposition. And if and if we do it and we decide not to, then we know it's maybe unlikely. Exactly. If we get to the point where we can do it, but it's it's technologically almost impossible, or it's hugely processor intensive, or the energy required is unfeasible, or whatever, then yeah. we can go okay makes sense maybe not but that's that that's really the cl- best proof we're gonna get is if we can do it it means we're likely simulants ourselves it's kind of an elegantly beautiful it really argument is. and proof it really is but it's also unbelievably frustrating it's oh it's a hugely frustrating theory because it's <laughs> it's just it's so like proving it is so outside of our wheelhouse in terms of science because totally. it requires being outside our universe to observe what we would need to prove it yeah right no absolutely <laughs> on the other side of that, how could we disprove it? Yeah. Like, again, not really, right? Um, yeah. s- some of the strong arguments against it are that a lot of scientists do think that simulating consciousness in reality is really, really tough, if not totally impossible. I mean, right. we can't even simulate a single neuron at the moment, right? 
Yeah. Like we're just, we're, we're so far away still. Like we're getting more and more intelligent machines, but we're so far away from consciousness. Yeah. Um, and then it would, it would just be untenably intensive in terms of power and, and computing and stuff. Uh, I mean, like that's, that's the theory. It's pretty big. It's pretty cool. And sure. This, this film that, that I directed is, as you know, based on the premise of it is that a researcher discovers proof of some sort that the universe is a simulation mm-hmm. and begins to become paranoid that the simulators, the people running the simulation are messing with him to try and stop him from discovering this and right. telling it totally. to the world. Uh, and then he disappears and his wife has to go after him and try and discover what happened. What that gets into is one of the, the existential risk scenarios that comes with this theory or this okay. hypothesis. If we are living in one of many nested simulations, that's one of the things to think about is what are our simulators looking for? The people in the simulation above us who are simulating us, why are right. they why, simulating Why us? are they simulating us? Right. Yeah. Why? Oh. There's, there's yeah. a ton of ideas out there. People, talk, people are talking about this stuff all the time. Would they be simulating us to prove that they're in a simulation, as we mentioned before? Because that would do yeah. it. Right? Are they simulating us to learn more about their evolutionary history? Mm-hmm. Or are they simulating us to learn more about their evolutionary future, about existential right. risk scenarios? Maybe we're in a giant nuclear destruction simulation where the goal is to get humanity to a point where we start blowing ourselves up so our simulators can try and figure out how to avert nuclear disaster that obliterates yeah. that obliterates their species. We are pretty close. Yeah. So th- that yeah. raises the question that I bring up in Qualia, which is what happens if we start getting wise to the fact that we might be in a simulation? Does that contaminate the simulation? Does that ruin the experiment in some way? Could, could the fact that we're talking about this now be leading towards our simulation being shut down if we're in one? Lucas and Jesse destroy the world. Exactly. Destroy the universe. So yeah. should we stop talking about it? Of course not. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's the basic idea. The, the other existential thing to think about, which is really cool and totally terrifying, is that if you have... A simulation inside a simulation inside a simulation inside a simulation. If we imagine for a second that the hypothesis is true, that we are living in a simulation, it's very likely that we are not near the top of the stack, so to speak. It's very likely we're way down near the middle or the bottom or wherever. Yeah. Right? Which means there are a ton of parent simulations that we have. And in all of those parent simulations, something could happen to destroy the planet on which the computer exists in which we're being simulated, or the power goes out, or anything like that happens. And anywhere up the chain, if something shuts this, that simulation down, they it, all go. It cascades down and we're destroyed. So if it's true we're living in a simulation, the the distance we are down the stack from the top dictates how much of an existential risk we face in terms of are we more likely to be wiped out? Because it adds the existential risk in our universe to the existential risk in the one above it, to that in the one above that. So it's it's a multiplicative danger. Wow. <laughs> wow. Qualia. Yes. So we finished shooting last week. It was a seven day shoot. It was a blast. Yeah. And um, we are now in post production. So we're going to do editing and visual effects and stuff like that for the next 90 days. And then it'll be done in February. Cool. So how can people see it? Well, we're going to enter the festival circuit once it's done. Okay. Cool. And we'll post information about where you could go see it if you want to. And then yep. once once we've completed with that sort of year in festivals, we'll post it online so everyone can see it. And you'll send it to your your funders. Yes, absolutely. Who was your, who was your first funder, Jesse? Lucas. Who's Lucas your, was our first um, first crowdfunding donator. There you go. Yes. There you go. 
which we very much appreciated. But <laughs> yeah, no, this is it's it's gonna be a pretty cool thing, and I'm excited to you know see the final project and also have it you know hopefully get people talking about this idea, which I think is a really cool concept. It's definitely still in the sci-fi realm, but it's a cool idea. We actually had Phil Torres uh, as a science consultant, and he's a philosopher. I think he's oh, out cool. of North Carolina right now, and. If you're interested in reading more about this stuff, he actually has a book coming out soon called The End, What Religion the and End. Science... It's, yeah, it's called The End, What Religion and Science Tell Us About the Apocalypse. And his book is all about different ways that the world could end, but based in scientific probability, not, not you know, scripture. Huh. I mean, I, I'd like to read that. That sounds really fascinating. It's really, really cool. It's going to be really awesome. I've read a couple chapters and it. it's just... Very, very cool. neat stuff. And one of the things he talks about, of course, is the simulation hypothesis and how yeah, being totally. somewhere down the stack puts us at a huge existential risk. Well, that's it for this week and our very special edition of Double Blind. As we mentioned, we're going to take a brief break. Um, for the next couple months, but we will be back right at the beginning of February with uh, an all-new episode. We have some great plans for the future. We're going to hopefully introduce some interviews to Double Blind as well, get some other scientists on here to talk about what they're doing, and it's going to be a lot of fun, so we really hope you join us then. Cool. We look forward to it. If you had any questions about today's episode, or you want to talk more about it, or start a discussion, or ask us anything else, you can get in touch with us either by email, stories at doubleblindscience.com, or preferably hit us up on Twitter. We are at doubleblindsci. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple months. See you in a few months. Bye-bye. Cheers. What came first? The jawbreaker or the, the earth? The Earth. <laughs> Definitely the Earth. <laughs> no question about that one. Are you sure they didn't design the Earth based on the jawbreaker?